I mean, this is very reflective of how I approach problem solving, at least when I'm, you know, if I'm working on a ticket and I'm not sure how to do something, it's typically my first port of call is to Google. Typically, the technical documentation will be in the top couple of Google search results, as well as maybe a Stack Overflow question. If then I can't find the answer to that, that's when I'm switching into research mode. I'm like, okay, so this question hasn't been asked before, and I'm not able to solve it with the technical documentation to the level that I understand. So I'm going to have to dive into blogs and how-to videos and written tutorials and try and find, get enough context where I can understand what is happening and then fix it. Tired of security bottlenecks? Sneak is a developer security platform that automatically scans your code, dependencies, containers, and cloud configs, finding and fixing vulnerabilities in real time from the tools and workflows you already use. Create your free account at sneak.co slash stackoverflow. That's S-N-Y-K dot C-O slash stackoverflow. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Stack Overflow podcast. I am your host, Ben Popper, Director of Content here at Stack Overflow, joined, as I often am, by my wonderful co-host, Matt Kiernander. Hey, Matt. Hello. Thank you for having me again. So we've got some fun data to dive into this week from the Stack Overflow Annual Developer Survey, which you and I both helped to sort of see and prepare and is always a great tool for folks who are trying to understand the industry and where they should go. 73,000 developers from 180 countries spent 15 minutes each answering the questions. So first of all, thank you to everybody in the community out there who took some time to help us with this. I guess the top two things that jumped out to me, which are trends we've seen before, but just, I think, pushed forward by the pandemic in the last two years, was a 10% jump in how many folks are learning online as opposed to through going to a traditional institution or I guess books and other methods. So increasingly people moving online to learn coding. And then that nearly 85% of the organizations represented in the survey have some remote workers, which I, I, I can't recall if we have the data to say how big of a jump that is, but you know the vast majority now. I'd be surprised if we did because three years ago, remote work was something that was nowhere near as accessible as it is today or something that was offered by by anyone. So would that would have been reflected in the 2021 survey? I don't know. We're going to have to go back and look and see. Yeah, they, they are both available, by the way, the 2022 and the 2021. So if you did want to draw your own comparisons, those surveys are both available for you to go and view. Yeah, I don't think we asked. We didn't style like this, you know, here in this latest one, it says, are you fully remote, hybrid, full in person? And just to break the data down a, le- a little bit more, 43% fully remote, 42.5% hybrid, and only f- slightly less than 15% fully in person. So the vast majority of developers not back to the office full time, far from it. I'm curious as to next year when we do the survey, how these numbers are going to shift, whether or not people are kind of sick of working remotely and are going to try and head back to an office and be around people again, or whether, you know, we're going to see more of an uptick in hybrid models or whether people are still very happy working remotely and um, staying well away. Yeah, the day that I've seen recently indicates that for the last like three to four months, it's sort of leveled off, like it dropped way, way down during the pandemic. Then, you know, in maybe the six last six months of 2021, you know, it started to climb back with people returning to the offices and now it's kind of leveled off and there's a new new lows, like where we sort of set a new baseline where not as many people are working from the office and it feels a little bit set in stone. And to your point about like 
what would make you know this change? One thing I've seen a lot of people say is that they would go back to the office, but only if they knew other people were going to be there. So there's this chicken and the egg problem of like, I'm not going to start going back in all the time if I'm not even going to run into people that I know. And until you know it's sort of <laughs> dictated or everybody picks a day, then that will never really happen. Personally, I'm a big fan of the the hybrid approach. I'd like having the option to go in and see people and socialize and kind of have those meetings and do work where doing it in person is a lot more convenient and, and fun. But then I also like the flexibility of heading, heading home and turning off my notifications, whatever else, and doing some like deep focus work totally. as well. I did a quick search and I could be wrong, but I, I couldn't find the words hybrid or remote in our 2021 survey. So it doesn't look like we even asked that question then. Yeah, I think with the 2022 survey, at least from what I know and how it was conducted is, you know, they did want to reflect the updated environment, current environment for remote working and everything that kind of COVID has pushed to the forefront. So this survey is probably, it's very relevant at the moment because it has been updated to reflect. I guess it would have been hard to ask that question in like May of 2021 because everybody yeah. everybody was still forced to work from home. So there wasn't like, well, you couldn't really gotten a good data point. Maybe if we go back further, we'll see it show up at some point. We'll have to look into that and see if like in some, sometime, I bet, you know, from 2015 till now, maybe we, we included that question. So the number one resource, which is great, is technical documentation. So this is like people go and read the docs. Great. Stack Overflow is number two. Huzzah. Then blogs and then videos. Although documentation Stack Overflow are at above 80%, blogs at 70 and how-to videos at 60%. So... I mean, this is very reflective of how I approach problem solving, at least when I'm, you know, if I'm working on a ticket and I'm not sure how to do something, it's typically my first port of call is to Google. Typically, the technical documentation will be in the top couple of Google search results, as well as maybe a Stack Overflow question. If then I can't find the answer to that, that's when I'm switching into research mode. And I'm like, okay, so this question hasn't been asked before and I'm not able to solve it with the technical documentation to the level that I understand. So I'm going to have to dive into blogs and how-to videos and written tutorials and try and find, get enough context where I can understand what is happening and then fix it in a way that works because that's not currently documented anywhere on the internet, at least that I can find. So this is kind of lining up with how I work and it seems that is how other people are uh, solving their issues as well. And far and away, the most popular online course for learning to code was Udemy, which is now a, a sort of a sister company of ours as part of the process edtech portfolio, as well as Codecademy, which I think is now part of Skillsoft. So those two are, we have them ranked separately here, but they're now a single company. So interesting to see that. I'm interested that YouTube didn't pop up in the online, oh, that I guess it's classified under online course platforms. I'm assuming that there would be a large chunk of people there as well who are not wanting to pay. There's how-to videos and video-based online courses. So maybe both of those kind of certification videos, like you could end up at YouTube for any of these maybe. Yeah, I mean, Udemy is, Udemy is great. I've used Udemy before, as well as Code Academy and Pluralsight. You know, I think really a lot of those things come down to the quality of the instructors and how well they kind of like surface relevant courses and, and everything else to you. So we have a question here, which we've asked before. And I assume people answer this honestly. I don't know why there would be inflation here since you're anonymous, but it says years of professional coding experience by developer type. And it's interesting if this is sort of like a snapshot of the people who visit Stack Overflow, you know, obviously it's self-select, they choose to participate in the survey. You know, the, the number one group is people who are senior technical executives, C-suite, VP, et cetera, 
engineering managers, and then product managers. So that to me is always kind of striking. I guess I assume Stack Overflow is more for people in the trenches, writing code every day, independent contributors. But that's the second year in a row that this sort of self-identification of people who take the survey is senior executive. That's very, because I'm looking at the years of professional work experience under professional developers and the largest category here, most people have one to four years of experience. It's 31.45% of our answers of 30,000 responses. That means that 70% remaining is from people who have five years of experience or more. Well, this thing, wait, this one here says years coding and the biggest group is five to nine years. I'm looking at years of professional work experience. Oh, interesting. All right. Well, before we get down to that, because I'm still higher up in experience, where it says years coding, the, the largest category is five to nine, and then 10 to 14 is about equal to one to four. And then years coding professionally, one to four is equal to five to nine. And then the third largest group is 10 to 14. So in this first set of responses, it seems like people are more in that five to 15 range which tracks for me to become, if you've been working five to 10 years within a tech organization, you could certainly reach an executive level. The, the data doesn't really match up because now it says independent contributor, people manager, and it's 84% independent contributor. So our, mm. the people who fill the survey are both executives and independent contributors. So maybe that's what they are. Maybe they work at startups. I don't know. Yeah, maybe. It is quite heartwarming to see that there's a lot of representation here for people who have been programming for 15 plus years. You know, we, we've had a couple of responses of people who are programming for more than more than 40. So that would be from the, the 80s onwards. They have seen some stuff. They've seen some <laughs> stuff. Yeah, they've been through the ringer. All right, cool. Well, yeah, I think that another thing that, that jumped out to me, obviously, and, you know, like kind of relates to the work you and I do was the, the time spent searching for answers and solutions. It seems like out of all respondents, half an hour to an hour a day was the most popular answer, with some saying they spend more like an hour to two hours and some 15 to 30 minutes. Even so, you know, that to me is kind of like the thing that ties back to our mission as a company is like, what is Stack Overflow, the public platform good for? And what is Stack Overflow for teams, the product we sell? Like, is there a pain point we're really solving here? Is there sort of product market fit and data like that, you know, would indicate, yes, like a large part of developers' time is still spent hunting down answers or trying to unpack a bug or an error and so it's kind of always affirming to see that kind of data, I guess, from our perspective. The majority of my time, like that's that's the thing, I guess, that kind of frustrates me about software development a little bit is that you are constantly either putting out fires or coming up against kind of like compilation errors of some kind. So a lot of your job is actually trying to do something and fixing what, like getting over the series of hurdles that you need to get to in order to get the thing working in the way that you intended. And so a lot of your job really is searching for answers on how to solve problems. And that's what Stack does it, it is, is it helps you reduce that time and get to where you need to be a little bit faster. And just sort of getting back to a bigger conversation that's happening in the industry and in society. We talked about this in the last podcast, but GitHub Copilot now available to all, but it costs 10 bucks a month. And I think they justify that by saying, you want to be able to write these, you know, these functions, you want to be able to craft something in code, you're getting an error message like this system can help you get around that, or it can essentially remember something that you'd have to look up. We just discussed how much time people spend on that. Or this is interesting, this is in the lab section. So it's sort of like still in beta, but it can parse from one language to another. So you say, I want to write this function, but I only know how to write in JavaScript. Can you create this same function in Python? And it'll translate it for you. So I can see how sort of like sort of low level AI helper tools like that 
are going to become a huge part of developers' workflow in the next few years. That would be a really interesting use case for learning a new language as well. If you're trying to kind of figure out the comparisons and how things are structured in, in different ways, being able to kind of like copy paste that into a different language and seeing what the changes are and how how that is affected would be really useful. What well, one thing to know as well with GitHub Copilot is that it is ten dollars a month or a hundred dollars a year, but it's also free for students and maintainers of popular open source projects. Right. Well, how do you define popular there? That was the one thing I didn't understand. That all sounds good, but like define popular. Like how many stars on GitHub or what? I don't know. I I'm assuming they probably have an AI that does this for them that defines what popular is based Got off it. of usage. Right. I got to file a ticket complaining that I deserve <laughs> that status or whatever. But yeah, I don't know. I've been struck over the last few weeks, a few times, I guess, you know, a lot of my friends shared that article from the Washington Post about the Google engineer who said he thought their AI was sentient. I didn't really completely agree with his take on things, but Dolly 2, the AI that can draw anything you ask it to, has been blowing my mind and I really think is a pretty disruptive product. And then there was a big New Yorker piece that just came out about a similar you know, AI system that can write poetry, which even to fans of certain poets, you know, it'll, you ask, say, write this kind of poem about this subject and the style of this poet, and it produces something, and you show it to someone who knows that poet, and they think, you know, I've never seen this one before. Like, is this from the archives? Yeah. Like, you know, is this undiscovered? Like, it's just so adept at mimicking the style. So I think this is going to be a big topic of conversation over the next year or two as these systems get more powerful and get more widespread. I think that there's going to be a hell of a lot of gray area when it comes to intellectual property. Because <laughs> say, for example, you've got a an AI that does poetry or a, a produces scripts, for instance, and it looks through all the episodes of Friends or Brooklyn Nine-Nine or whatever it is, and then it starts creating its own episodes. Like, you know, like that's drawing from... I'm. This is going down a huge no, rabbit hole. I know hole. what you're saying. Yeah, no, completely you know, we'll have to figure it out and the courts will have to figure it out. But if I'm a student of other television shows and I watch them all and then I write a script, you know, I'm not being charged. In music, it's very strict. Like if I borrow seven notes in a row, I might have to, you know, pay you a licensing fee or whatever. And then in art, it's it's pretty tough. People will say your style is derivative. But actually, I saw yesterday, they've, I think it was Cosmopolitan, maybe somebody, the first magazine cover that was just a Dolly generated, hey, make this has been done. Oh. So Cool. No, I, I don't think in that one, I don't know if they said, can you do it in the style of X? Or they just said, show me an astronaut walking on the moon in the style of Russian impressionism or whatever. You know, in the past, you would have paid somebody thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of dollars to take the cover photo for that magazine. I mean, that's a, you know, extremely lucrative piece of real estate. And now mm. a piece of software is just spitting it out based on a five word prompt. Yeah. The, the topic of whether or not AI will take our jobs is something that's coming up more and more often these days. And we're probably going to have conversations around this many, many times in the future. I'm kind of of the opinion that it's going to suck up some employment opportunities for people. It's also going to open up and generate new jobs for others. But hopefully, and there's a there's a, an artist called Andrew Price who does a lot of 3D modeling. He's very prolific in, in that kind of industry. And he did a talk on AI art and its impact on artists. And his take on it was these tools are basically just going to allow us to iterate faster, move through more concepts in a more iterative manner. So we'll ultimately end up doing better art at the end of the day. This isn't going to replace us. There's still very much a human element required in context in order to do the job that we do. And I'm hoping that that stays the same way with things like this. Yeah, for sure. 
So I guess a few other highlights I wanted to touch on here. We're actually going to have a piece on this, I think, coming up in the future. Not sure how soon. We added version control, a whole section on that. Not surprisingly, Git was far and away the top, but 17% of learners don't use that. So there's this other world representing you know about a fifth of people who are doing something else. So I'm very curious to know what that is. If you listen to the show and you don't use Git or you maybe you use it for work, but you have something else you prefer on your own, send us an email or, or tweet at us and let us know because I'm curious. So are, are you looking at the uh, version control systems, which has Git, SVN, Mercurial, and I don't use one? It says here, it was no surprise that Git was far and away the top version control system, especially among professionals. 17% of learners do not use a version control system at all. And I guess I was curious, yeah, from the folks who use stuff outside of Git, like, why? <laughs> I've never met somebody <laughs> yeah. who works at a large corporation that doesn't use Git. And so if you're not, like, is it because your company doesn't, because you feel just doesn't fit your personal style? Like, and how do you take this really critical piece of, you know, being a software developer at this point and work outside the box like that? I can talk to that a little bit because okay. my first internship was actually at a healthcare company. And some of those, especially when it comes to healthcare, where everything is super regulated, security is of the utmost importance when you're dealing with like patient data and, and all that kind of thing. They typically run on very old software and they did not use Git, they used SVN. It operates in a very different way than Git does and nobody enjoyed using it. It was very much a, a thorn in the thumb when it came to any kind of technology related thing. I'd be curious as to the use case, the current use cases for SVN and Mercurial and why people are using that. So yeah, like to your point, if, if anyone is using that, please write into the show. We would love to know whether or not you're working in an industry like healthcare that requires that and it's running on very odd legacy systems or whatever other reason that might be. Yeah, yeah, you make a good point. I mean, maybe that decision was made at the corporate level and it really has nothing to do with the, the technical staff and their preference. There are politics at play when it comes to technology choice for sure. Okay, cool. Um, and then the last thing I wanted to touch on, and, and Matt, obviously, if there's stuff that you think is interesting here, we'll dive into it, was the bit about returning to the same answer over and over again. I really want to have like a neuroscientist or somebody on the show to, to walk me through the, the sort of cost-benefit analysis here of looking up the same thing three or four times a month versus just actually memorizing it for yourself through some mnemonic or through <laughs> practice. like. If my brain refuses to like learn this thing, am I better off saving that space for other things that I'm good at and not burning the cycles and having a bookmark? Or you know, is pushing through that frustration, that difficulty, and finally making it a piece of my 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 memory worthwhile? And I guess, you know, like there are things, again, getting back to the AI, I've seen people tweet and joke about a lot. When they need the regex, they Google it and they end up at Stack Overflow. Now, Cassidy was saying there are certain things that she used to look up all the time, she just asks Copilot and it, you know, it drops it in there for her. And so she can focus oh, on this cool. business logic and other things instead, you know? So I'm very curious to like, I want to know how to approach that. Like when, if you have this second brain, like when is it, when are you using it right? And when are you using it poorly? Maybe there, maybe that's not the right framing, but that's how I think about it. Yeah. I mean, I answered that question. I do return to the answer quite a few times and it's, it's typically for specific things that are very, so for example, you get a new laptop and you're having to set up your environment variables all over again and put in your like Python commands and Java and right. all that kind of stuff. Like that's not something that you do every month. It's something that you do kind of like once every two to three years and you forget and then you have to, you go through the same pain points again and it's kind of like the frequency there is not enough for you to learn how to do that. And my, to go into a more frequent approach, like my take on it is that 
my approach to software development is more like at a high level, you need to understand what you're capable of doing with the tools that you have. And so you don't necessarily need to know granularly what it is you need to do to get to where you need to go, but you need to know it's possible to get there. And so in that case, it's kind of like you can go back to the same answer again and again and again, because you're not dedicating time to like put that into your brain. You just know that that resource is there for you if you need it in the future. All right, everybody. Well, yeah, if you want to learn more about this year's developer survey results, you can head on over to the blog. A great story there from David Gibson and Ryan Donovan kind of putting together some of the highlights, or you can head over to survey.stackoverflow.co slash 2022, and you'll get all the results in a nice interactive form there built by some of the great folks on our brand design team. Matt, you put in one other link here, which I wanted to touch on something a little bit lighter before we head out. IKEA now has an AR app that lets you delete furniture in your home and replace it with IKEA. So I assume I ha- I'm holding up my phone. I got my ratty old couch. I click it and it disappears and I see what a, a nice new IKEA couch would look like in that space. Nailed it. That is exactly it. And it's not just furniture as well. Like the example that they gave, I really want to take a deep dive into how this actually works because you can remove things like guitars on the wall or right. filing cabinets or plants like it's not just kind of like big kind of like this is a square and we'll kind of like do some kind of point analysis and remove the square like these are quite interesting objects that they're (laughs) able to remove and then you can you can filter and replace it does require a little bit of setup and everything else but i think the technology here is like this is a very 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 good use use case for augmented reality apart from pokemon go which was also very valid right I took a little trip over the Father's Day weekend and we rented a car, a Yukon Denali, which is not, it's like a very large luxury SUV, not the kind of thing I would normally be getting into. And it has a ton of cameras, I think maybe 20 cameras or something like that on the car. And it does this insane mode where when you back up the car, it shows you the you know rear camera view, but then it also shows you a top-down view as if there was like a yeah. drone hovering over the car. And it superimposes like a digital version of a dumpster or some sand or the car next to you. So it like stitches together all those pictures essentially and gives you this AR top-down version. I was just, it was blowing my mind. Yeah, I, um, I've actually been in a car. I think my dad was driving something similar for a period. And it was bizarre because he's like pushing 60. And yeah. I was, exp- I got into that car. I saw that and I was just like blown away. I was like, holy cr-. like. The car does this, and he thought it was, he was just like, oh, yeah, I can just see better now. <laughs> like, I don't think he fully appreciated what went into a quality of life improvement like that. It was, um, uh, it was pretty cool to see. Yeah, it, it sort of like gives you this whole new perspective on the world, and it actually is incredibly utilitarian. It's so useful when you're trying to park a disgustingly large SUV. <laughs> a huge SUV. Yeah. All right, everybody. Well, thanks again for listening. Uh, We're going to take you to the outro, give you some lifeboats. um, And yeah, if you haven't checked out the dev survey, please make sure to do so. All right, everybody. It is that time of the show. I'm going to shout out the winner of a lifeboat badge, someone who came on Stack Overflow, saved a question from the dustbin of history and got it up to a positive score so they can spread some knowledge around the community. This was awarded June 19th to Jarzon, make a hidden field required. All right, Jarzon, thanks for coming on and spreading some knowledge. We really appreciate it. Asked four years ago and helped almost 20,000 people. Ooh, I love this. There's a little thing here. 
at the top, I've got a little thing I can run the code snippet and copy the snippet to answer or expand the snippet. I haven't seen this before right at the top like this. Neat little functionality. I'll share it with no, you. No, neither have I. New stuff popping up on Stack Overflow all the time. All right, everybody. Thanks for listening. We appreciate you. If you want to reach me, you can always find me. I'm at Ben Popper on Twitter. If you want to get in touch about the show, email us, podcast at Stack Overflow. Questions, suggestions, whatever it is, we'll shout you out. And if you like the program, go ahead and leave us a rating and a review on your podcast listening platform of choice. It really helps. I'm Matt Kinlander. I'm a technical advocate here at Stack Overflow. You can find me online and all the places at Matt Kander, M-A-T-T-K-A-N-D-E-R. Awesome. All right, everybody. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you soon. Bye.